You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. What is the event that launches the last seven years of man's rule on earth? The last seven years of life as we know it. Some might say, what is it that launches the end of the world? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? Most prophecy-minded Christians will tell you it's something known as the covenant with the many. But then just ask them some more questions. Like, who makes the covenant with the many from Daniel 9.27? Or, what will the covenant with the many look like? And you're going to get a bunch of different answers. As many people argue about this as they do about rapture timing. Isn't that strange? Two of the most important topics in prophecy, the rapture and the covenant, and folks can't agree. So I have to ask, did God see this coming? Well, of course he did. He knows everything. Okay, so if he saw this disagreement coming, why didn't he have Daniel write his prophecy more clearly? Or did God have him write the prophecy in this way for a reason? So we wouldn't know everything right now. Interesting question, isn't it? You can ponder that for a while, and I'll give you my thoughts on that at the end of this teaching. This is Bible teacher Nelson Walters, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, the covenant with the many is an agreement that launches the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years of human rule on earth, or what some call the tribulation. I've studied this agreement for most of my Christian life. And to me, the Bible seems like it's almost intentionally vague about this issue. It tells us there is a covenant with the many that launches the tribulation, but it doesn't say what the covenant looks like, It says that he makes or empowers the covenant with many for one week. But who is this he? So today, we're going to try to figure out what the Bible says about this, what the covenant with the many might be, and most importantly, what Christians should be doing if and when they see this sign. Now, before we go there, some of you might be asking, wasn't the 70th week completely fulfilled in the past at Jesus' first coming? If you're asking this, you're either what we call a preterist or a partial preterist. You believe lots of prophecies were fulfilled in the past and there isn't a whole lot left for the future. And the answer, of course, to your question is no. We did a whole video on the Nelson Walters channel on that topic. And if you think this way, check that video out first and come back and then watch this one. Now let's look at the who question first. Who is it that makes this covenant? Because that might answer what the covenant is if we know who makes it. There are three opinions. Some say it's the Antichrist. Others say it's Jesus. And others still say it's a group of people. And as Christians often do, we fuss and fight over the answer. But with so much at stake, this is the event that launches the tribulation after all, We can't be wrong about this. So I've spent years pouring myself into this question, and I've discovered that we as a church know less about this 
than we think, less than our scholars think. Let me say that again. The church knows less about the covenant with the many than they think they do, and we're more opinionated about this than we should be. And let's begin where we should begin, with the scripture from Daniel 9, 25 to 27 that describes this. So you are to know and discern this, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince, and that's Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off or killed and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Many of you are familiar with this prophecy. It's divided into three sections of something called weeks. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week for a total of 70 weeks. And these weeks are actually weeks of years, not weeks of days. Seven years each, just like a week of days has seven days in it. A week of years has seven years in it. That's where we get this idea of a final seven-year period of time, a seven-year tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. It comes from this prophecy. Okay, so far so good. We don't have a lot of arguments. We see that after the 7 and 62 weeks, total of 69 or 483 years, the Messiah comes on the scene. And then after this 69th week or seven-year period, and yet before the 70th week, the Messiah is killed and then the temple and the city are destroyed. Now, our Messiah died in approximately 30 AD, give or take a few years, and the temple was destroyed in AD 70. This is the easiest way to prove to yourself that there's a gap between the 69th week and the start of the 70th week, by the way. I mean, you know, it's a seven-year period. It's not a 40-year period like we just discussed. But what we're talking about today is who is this he who makes that covenant? Pronouns like he, she, and it don't mean anything by themselves. They have to refer back to someone mentioned earlier in the text. If I said he went to the store and didn't say anything else, you'd say, well, well who? who went to the store? But if I said Tom came home and then he went to the store, then you'd know who the he was. It was Tom. I know this is going to sound nerdy, but this previous someone is called the antecedent of the pronoun. In this example, Tom is the antecedent, and it should be the same gender and number as the pronoun. And in the example, it is. He is male, and there's only one of him, and Tom fits the bill. Now, in Daniel 9.27 that we just read, we can apply this. There are only three nouns that could be the he, the Messiah, the people of the prince who is to come, or the prince who is to come himself. Those are the only choices. We can rule out the people because it's plural. <laughs> there were many of them, so it doesn't fit the singular he. And so we're down to two. The second rule about the antecedent is it needs to be the closest or nearest noun. And the nearest noun is the prince who is to come. 
And that is why the vast number of modern scholars have said that the he is the Antichrist, as they assume the Antichrist is the prince who is to come. Because it was his people, the Romans and Arabs, who destroyed the temple and city in AD 70, at least according to these scholars. And probably 75% of the modern Christians believe this one. But others argue that yes, the prince who is to come will make the covenant, but that prince is actually Jesus himself. Well, how can they say that? Well, in verse 25, Jesus is referred to as Messiah, the prince. And in verse 26, just one verse later, it refers to both Messiah and the prince. The Messiah is killed at the beginning of the verse as the suffering servant. But later, these folks argue he will return in a second coming as the prince who is to come. And it is on his behalf that the Romans and Arabs destroyed the city, almost upon his order, to put an end to sacrifices and the temple system. These folks will argue that the Antichrist isn't mentioned anywhere else in Daniel 9. So how can a prince who is to come refer to him if he was never mentioned? And that is a pretty strong argument. Now, the folks who believe that the he is the Antichrist will say, hey, wait a minute. That's how the world is going to know who the Antichrist is because he makes this covenant. What do you say about that? Well, for the people who believe it's Jesus, they would argue and say, that's not how the Antichrist is revealed. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3 and 4, it says that the Antichrist is revealed at the midpoint of a tribulation when he takes his seat in the temple of God. So even if he makes the covenant, that's not how the Antichrist is revealed. People will not know it's him at that point. To make this even more ambiguous, as if it, it wasn't ambiguous enough already, in 200 BC, 70 Hebrew scholars got together and translated the Old Testament into Greek. This is known as the Septuagint translation, and it's 1,200 years older than the current Hebrew translations of the Old Testament that we base our modern English Bibles on. Keep that in mind. And in this translation, it doesn't even have the word he. Instead, it says, and one week shall establish the covenant with the many. This says nothing about who makes or enforces the covenant at all. It could be the Antichrist, it could be Jesus, or it could even be an unnamed group that makes the covenant. So as we said earlier, if you thought you knew who it is that makes the covenant, I'm sure you see now. It's not nearly as clear as you thought it was. And Remember, we're going to answer that question on why this might be so at the end of his teaching. But let's leave that question for another minute and ask our second question. What is the covenant with the many we've been talking about? And is this covenant made, strengthened, or enforced? The Hebrew word that most translations render as make a strong, as in make a strong covenant, is gabar. And it's found in the hephil form of Hebrew. This word means to enforce or to strengthen. It absolutely does not mean to make. So the covenant is either forced on the many or an existing covenant is strengthened. So on top of everything else that we've been talking about, we have a translation issue in English as well. 
Now let's put that information to use. If it's Jesus who is the he, this would mean he would be strengthening an existing covenant for seven years. He wouldn't be forcing a covenant on people. So what covenant would he strengthen? Why the new covenant, I would think, of course, the one he paid for with his blood on the cross. And you might ask, how would he strengthen that covenant? The covenant's already pretty strong. It's the covenant that won our salvation. Well, it could be done by empowering those he made it with. We know God is going to pour out his spirit in the end times, sending dreams and visions. Maybe this is the meaning then. He gives more gifts of the Holy Spirit to endure and overcome the difficult times that are about to begin. And we know from Joel 2 and Matthew 10 that believers are given extra gifts of the Spirit in the end times. Okay, so that's what it would look like if the he is Jesus. But what if the he is the Antichrist? He wouldn't be necessarily strengthening a covenant. He might be enforcing a covenant. What would the covenant be then? We aren't told. Scholars have guessed it might be a peace treaty or a peace covenant that's linked to allowing Israel to do sacrifices again on the Temple Mount or even a peace covenant that divides the land of Israel into a two-state solution. From Joel chapter 3, we know that this is going to happen at some point and it's going to be judged by Jesus. So all of these things are found elsewhere in the Bible, but None of them are specifically linked to the covenant in Daniel 9.27. So what if an unnamed group forces the covenant on the rest of the world, like the Septuagint translation seems to indicate? What if this covenant takes control of the whole earth? This would fulfill the coming of the mystery Babylon government, who is going to rule all the kings of the earth, as in Revelation 17.18. But again, this prophecy is in the Bible, but it's not linked to the covenant. So just like the question of who causes the covenant, what it is, isn't completely clear. So let's circle back to the question we asked at the beginning of the teaching. Why is the Bible so ambiguous on a subject that's so important? We've seen we can't be definitive on what the covenant is or even who makes it. Well, why is that? Well, I'm going to give you my theory. Maybe the covenant will be so overwhelming in scope that no one could miss it so we don't have to know exactly what it is in advance. For instance, a covenant of earth-shaking proportions may be about to happen this very fall. The United Nations is planning something called the Summit on the Future, which they hope the nations will give up their sovereignty to the UN, making the UN the de facto one world governance system, just like Mystery Babylon. Maybe this pact for the future that they hope the nations will sign also has a peace treaty rolled up into it and solves Middle East peace. Things are certainly going in that direction. Again, remember this is speculation. And maybe it allows sacrifices on the Temple Mount, all in one treaty. If you saw a one-world government form and sacrifices happen on the Temple Mount, all from one treaty, and what if it was signed on the Jewish High Holy Day of the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah? Then, 
what would you say? Maybe you'd wonder, did I just witness the covenant with the many? And what if at the same time, believers suddenly received an infilling of the Holy Spirit, that they began to prophesy, heal the sick, maybe even raise the dead, as per Matthew 10? What would you think then? You see, there's nothing in Scripture that says the covenant can't be both the enforcement of an earthly political covenant and at the same time, the strengthening of a heavenly new covenant by Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, that's why prophecy in Daniel 9.27 is so ambiguous. <laughs> maybe because it has two meanings at the same time. And we've been arguing about two sides of the same question that really there was no need to argue about. It's kind of like arguing whether an M&M candy either has a candy shell or a chocolate middle. <laughs> Terrible argument because it has both at the same time. Maybe, just maybe, that's what Daniel 9.27 has always been about. Maybe it's two prophecies in one. One about earth-shaking political covenants that launched the 70th week and at the same time an earth-shaking heavenly covenant that empowers and emboldens Christians still on the earth to be able to overcome during the difficult times ahead. To which some of you may say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I'm pre-trib. I don't have to worry about this because I'll never see the covenant with the many. I'm going to get raptured first. So if you're saying that, well, maybe you will be. But what if you aren't? What if you're waking up one day and you do see these things happen, just as I described? Formation of a one world government, along with the start of sacrifices on the Temple Mount. At the same time, believers all over the world, including yourself, begin to see visions and do miracles. Then what would you think if you're still on earth and see these things? You see, this is a very important question. Up to this point in time, Nearly all end-time prophecies lie in the future. We have only really seen a handful of them, like the creation of Israel. But at what point will any of us be willing to change our minds about the theories that we're holding on to so strongly if we see something contrary to what we have always expected? For instance, if you're pre-trib, what are you going to think if you see the Antichrist sit in the temple of God and declare himself to be God? Will you still consider yourself pre-trip? It's an important question. So will we be willing to change our minds if we see something different than what our theories told us we'd see and experience? Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 